Good morning, everybody. How are you? Comfortable in here? Boy, it's cold outside. Cold outside. I am super glad that you're here today because today is the first of a three-part series we're introducing entitled Focus. I'm going to speak in a moment from Luke chapter 15. If you want to go ahead and open your Bible, Luke chapter 15. This is a series about focus. Uh, maybe more importantly, it's about a series uh, about not losing focus of the truly important things in the church. Uh, we are, over the next three weeks, going to talk about today how God sees people. Next week, how does God see the church? And then finally, how does God see me? Um, now, I will tell you that in 25 years of, of ministering, 25 years of working in churches and trying my best to teach this book... I have never, ever addressed this subject that people didn't understand, that some people misunderstood. Uh, I have never addressed this subject and tried to teach it from not only this passage, but other passages like it, without someone misunderstanding my intention or misunderstanding what I'm trying to communicate. I hope and pray that doesn't happen today. Because I will tell you that every time in the past that I have addressed this subject and done my best to make it as clear as possible and done my best to make sure that anyone can understand and grasp this if you're willing to approach it with an open mind, people have not only misunderstood, sometimes misunderstanding has led to their being offended. Sometimes their being offended has led them to actually leave this church. I hope and pray that that doesn't happen today. How does God view people? Now, one thing that's fascinating to me as you study through the Gospels. Now, I've studied them for many years, and many of you have done the same. If you've read the four biographies of Jesus Christ that kick off the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, one of the things most fascinating to me, it's amazing actually, is that Jesus Christ, God's Son, when He was on earth, 30 years old, introducing His ministry, did not gravitate toward religious people. Now, I say that because I think it's surprising to some of us if we were honest with ourselves. You see, when Jesus was 30 years old, he was baptized by John the Baptist, and he started his public ministry. In other words, he took his message to the masses. Now, I think most of us would assume that if Jesus Christ were going to be in Statesboro this weekend, he would spend his Sunday going around to all the churches, right? He'd show up at this church, he'd show up at that church, he'd meet with these church people and and that church people. He'd spend all weekend long, because after all, he's in town. After all, we have to be the people he's most interested in speaking with. He would be at this church, that church, the other church. We'd have a a time during the day that we kind of signed up for him to make an appearance. But when you read through the Gospels, it's the exact opposite. Jesus did not gravitate toward religious people. In fact, Jesus gravitated toward irreligious people, disinterested people, non-educated religious people. In fact, one of the cool things about Jesus, and if you read the Gospels, you'll see this loud and clear. Jesus was hard on religious people. Jesus reserved his most harsh comments, his most fiery discourse, not toward people outside the church, but toward people inside the church. And one of the most amazing things about Jesus was this. People who weren't like him, liked him. People who weren't anything like Jesus, liked Jesus. Now think about that for a minute. Because again, I think kind of the paradigm in our local churches today, especially in our culture, is that if Jesus were here, he'd like us. That we'd be at the top of his priority list. 
that whatever we were doing, whatever this church was about, Jesus would have to make himself a part of it. He'd be here to pat us on the back, pat us on the head, say, well done. Jesus was liked by people who weren't anything like Jesus. Hmm. Now, the New Testament also teaches me, and this comes through loud and clear, there's no denying it, that we are his body. That we, the church, the followers of Jesus Christ, are the body of Christ. Now think about this for a minute. That means that whatever Jesus was personally, we should be collectively. Right? I mean, you get that. If Jesus was compassionate, then his church should be compassionate. And if Jesus was kind and loving, then his church should be kind and loving. If Jesus were generous, then we should be generous. If Jesus were honest, we should be honest. If Jesus was something personally, then we should be the embodiment of it collectively. That's what it means for the church to be the body of Jesus Christ. So, if people not like Jesus like Jesus, people not like us ought to like us. Does that make sense? People not like Jesus like Jesus, and he gravitated to them, they gravitated to him. People not like us ought to like us. For better than 20 years now, that's been our message at Grace Community Church. How can we figure out a way to get those outside, not like us, to come inside and become like us? Even if you don't believe our message, you're welcome in this church. Even if you don't believe what I say on Sundays, you're welcome in this church. Even if you're skeptical of this book, you are welcome in this church. Even if you don't believe what we believe, you can still become one of us so far as being a part of things at Grace Community Church. That's because people who weren't like Jesus like Jesus. People who aren't like us need to like us. Conversely, the most uncomfortable people around Jesus were religious people. Did you know that? The Pharisees, the scribes, Jesus called them hypocrites. The most religious among them were the most uncomfortable around God's son. That tells me that if we're the body of Jesus Christ, those super religious, pious kind of people ought not feel real at home at Grace Community Church. At least I hope that they don't. People not like Jesus liked Jesus. People not like the church ought like the church. I want you to be liked by our community because you are some of the finest folks I've ever had the privilege of knowing. When I go into the bank, even if those people don't go to this church, even if they don't believe what I believe, I still want them to like me. I still want them to like me. I still want there to be something that draws them to this building and to this place. Now, this is not an architectural thing. It's not about making our churches look a certain way. It's not about making a church of design appear a certain way. That's not what draws people to the local assembly. Now, this church is 15 years old. We've been in this building for 15 years, and I'll tell you, I've got a list as long as my arm of things I don't like about this building, things I don't like about this campus, things I wish we could change, things I wish we could alter, things I wish we could make more effective, more, excuse me, more better, pardon the grammar. But listen to me, church, it's not the square footage of our lobby. It's not the fact that we don't have enough, you know, flexible space on Sundays for people to meet with small groups and different classes that we meet. It's not about architecture. It's about atmosphere. It's about the atmosphere that you and I create 
by the people we are. It's about our presence when we come together. Would someone outside, not like us, still want to be like us? I think it's easy to make faulty assumptions when it comes to a church's architecture. If you're driving through the country on a windy road and there's this beautiful, quaint, white church house sitting up on a hill. It's surrounded by big, tall pine trees that are swaying gently in the breeze. It is very easy to assume, I'll bet that's a friendly church. I'll bet that's a warm and inviting church. I'll bet those people love each other. Everybody knows each other's names. I'll bet that's a close church. Conversely, go downtown in a large urban area and look at one of those big high-rise type stone buildings uh, where a church meets. It's easy to assume there that's probably a cold church. That's probably a distant church. Probably would become hard to become a part of things in that church. You could look at a very small, modest, unassuming building like this one you're sitting in and say, well, there's probably not a lot going on in that church. You could look at a big flashy church and you could probably assume, man, I'll bet the power of God is there every Sunday. It's not about the architecture. It's about the atmosphere and the atmosphere starts with you. We should be the most likable people in the community if I want to be like Jesus. See, I want people who aren't anything like me to be drawn to this church. Again, even if they don't embrace our message, even if they don't believe what we believe, I still want them to like us. And if we are like Jesus, they will. That's why we're so intentional about resisting certain things that would keep people outside the church. That's why it matters. That's why you, as a church member for 10 years, might have the greatest idea. You bring it to us and we say, "Uh, maybe not. We're going to talk about this from Luke chapter 15. You see, one of the main reasons people who were not like Jesus liked him so much is because they knew that he saw them differently. They knew that Jesus looked at them in a different way than the Pharisees, the religious people, looked at them. Jesus used different verbiage, different terminology, different adjectives to describe the people who were not like him than the Pharisees and the religious people did. Now, we've all got this bias. You need to recognize that immediately. There are all, quote, those people in our lives, right? In fact, blank people, blank people, think about it. Those are the rich people. There's where the rich people live in Statesboro. Those are the educated people. Those are the uneducated people. Uh, That's the growing church. Uh, That's the dying church. Uh, Those are the needy people. Those are the broken. Those are the screwed up people. Okay. Either way, no matter what adjective you use, it boils down to our knowledge, kind of an innate sensation that those people are like me and those people are not. Those people are my people and those people are not my people. Generally, we gravitate even in our churches toward people most like ourselves. And yet Jesus did the exact opposite. Read with me, beginning in verse one, of Luke chapter 15, three parables, three stories Jesus tells about people and things that were lost. Verse 1, now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. Now, you see those words, tax collectors and sinners? That was the way religious people looked down upon the outsiders. They called them tax collectors and sinners. A tax collector was a sellout to the Jewish national 
uh, pride. A, a tax collector was hated and despised in Jesus' day. The sinners, just like religious people today, looked down their nose on the people whose lives were unkept and maybe even out of control. But notice, they were all gathering around Jesus. Those people were gathering around Jesus. People not like Jesus liked Jesus. Verse 2. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. There are people in our churches all around this community, and God forbid even in this church, who do the same. We mutter, You know she married a black man. You know she went out and found her a white boy. You know she voted for Hillary Clinton. You know she's a liberal. You know he just got out of prison. You know they're on their third marriage. You know her son just got let out of jail. Do you know he got a DUI? That's what the Pharisees were doing. They were labeling the tax collectors and the sinners. Keep reading. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? Now, stop for a moment. You need to understand that a large percentage of the people in Jesus' audience were either shepherds or someone in their family was a shepherd. You might not know the first thing about shepherding sheep. I know I don't. But I do know from speaking to cattlemen and ranchers that if you've got a hundred and one gets out, you leave the 99 and you go after the one. We, in our kind of comfortable environment, our comfortable culture, we might convince ourselves, well, I've got 99, I can replace the one later, I'll let him go. Not Jesus. When Jesus said, haven't you heard about the shepherd who loses one and leaves the 99 to go get him? The audience would have been nodding their head, yeah, yeah, we get it. All right, keep reading. Verse 5, when he finds it, he joyfully puts it over his shoulders. He goes home, he calls his friends and neighbors and says, Rejoice with me, for I have found my lost sheep. Isn't it exciting to find something that was once lost? Have you ever lost something and then you found it? How does that feel? Now, listen, let's be honest with ourselves. I just want you to be honest. There's no way that the 99 things you didn't lose can produce the same feeling over the one thing you did lose, but you found it again, right? I mean, I have jumped up for joy. I have danced a jig when I have found something that I thought I had lost or did lose, but now I've found. That's the picture, that's the painting that Jesus is crafting with his words in front of this mixed audience. The super-religious Pharisees and the sinners and tax collectors. Now, that leads me to a good point. Here it is. When we lose something that's of great value... We focus on what's lost to the neglect of what's not. When I lose something that matters to me, it doesn't matter the other 99 that I have. I'm all about the one that I've lost. Twice in our 25-year marriage, Amy has lost her diamond ring. One time the diamond came out of the ring, and that was sickening. Where are you going to find that little bitty tiny, barely can see it? Where are you going to find it? Now, what if she called me at work and said, Michael, listen, I lost my diamond ring, but I still got my cell phone. <laughs> Would that mean anything to me? No, that wouldn't mean anything to me. Honey, Michael, I lost the diamond from my engagement ring, but I've still got my car keys. That wouldn't mean anything to me. When I get the call or I come home in the evening and she's got that sick look on her face, I lost my ring. We're sick about it, and it doesn't matter what's not lost. If you're a parent, you've ever lost your kid, 
You ever lose a kid at the mall? You know, you thought he had her, but, but he thought you had her. Uh, you know, you go to your wife and say, uh, look, honey, I lost our daughter, but I still got our son. <laughs> That's going to get you nowhere, right? That's going to get you nowhere. Because when we lose something of value, we search for it intentionally, passionately, even to the neglect of what's not lost. Keep reading. Verse 7. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Now, you realize this was actually offensive to the Pharisees. They found this antagonistic. They found this offensive. This kind of language would have bothered them just like it bothers some people today. What do you mean he's more important than me? What do you mean he's more valuable than I? That's not what Jesus said. Just like when I stand here and I say Grace Community Church is about showing people a better way of life in Christ. Let's figure out a way to get people outside the church to come inside the church so we can do just that. Here's what I'm not saying, but what people consistently hear. Oh, well, then he doesn't care about me. It's not at all what I'm saying. Oh, well, then I guess this church doesn't have anything to offer me. Not at all what I'm saying. Oh, I guess I'll never grow spiritually in this church. Not at all what we're saying. Look what Jesus says again, verse 7. I tell you the same way, there's more rejoicing in heaven. You know what I tend to think? I think that we're the ones that warm the heart of God. Isn't that what we think? You know, when we get together and we sing, oh man, God must be so proud of us. Man, when we do good work in the community, God must be thrilled to have us on his team. But that's not what the scripture says. In fact, nowhere in the New Testament does the scripture say that. The scripture says instead, the words of Jesus There's so much rejoicing in heaven when one sinner repents. Now he changes gears. Verse 8. Suppose a woman has ten silver coins and she loses one. Now in this day and in this culture, that was part of the dowry. You know, if I had a daughter, I'd give her ten valuable coins and, and mom would sew them into her veil. And whenever she went out on a date, whenever she was courted, she'd wear this veil. And there were these seven valuable or ten valuable coins sewn into the veil. So the message was, hey, if you marry me, you get this. Okay? Well, what happens if she's got ten, but she loses one? Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, search carefully until she finds it? Again, doesn't it feel good when you find something that you thought was previously lost? There's a powerful emotion to that. And Jesus is trying to tap into that. Verse 9. When she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together. She says, rejoice with me. I've found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Leads me to another great point. Here it is. When we lose something of great value, we're willing to go to great lengths to find it. The shepherd in the first parable is willing to leave and risk his 99 to go after the one. The woman in the second parable is willing to tear the house apart, turn all the lights on, pull the furniture from the wall, take the cushions out of the easy chair, everything she can do, great effort, great lengths to find that one that was lost. Listen to me. God went to great lengths to find you. He went to great lengths turning heaven over hell to reach out to you. 
sacrificing His one and only precious Son, becoming one of us to endure our humiliation, our scorn, our unfair treatment, eventual suffering, death, humiliation on a cross because you were lost. And we won't, and we as the church, won't inconvenience ourselves just a little bit to reach someone out there, try to get them in here. Shame on us. Now, most of you know the, the next story. It begins in verse 11. It's the story of the prodigal son. But I don't want you to miss the point. It's not the story of the prodigal son. It's the story of the lost son. You see, the first parable was the lost sheep. The second parable was the lost coin. The third parable is the lost son. And you know how the story goes backwards and forwards. I don't need to read it all. But please don't miss that point. You remember? The son comes to the father. says, Dad, I want my inheritance now. Okay? When you die, we're going to split this kingdom. We're going to split this ranch. We're going to split all of your possessions. And I'm going to get half. Well, look. You just keep living and living and living. I want mine now, okay? So I'm asking you to liquidate your estate. I want half of it, and I want it now. Now, how would you have felt if you were this kid's father? How would you have felt? Oh, you'd have been heartbroken, I'm sure. You'd have felt a huge amount of regret. Somebody didn't raise that boy very well. This boy was disconnected from his father. This was that teenage son that never even acknowledges you when you walk into the door after a long, hard day. Got his earbuds in, you know, he's on the iPad or the cell phone. This is the kid that sat at the dinner table and never opened his mouth, just hurried up and shoveled it in and then asked to be excused. That's this son. And the father's heart is broken. But the father thinks, the only way I can regenerate this relationship, the only way that I can bring my son back and have him want to stay is if I let him go, is if I do what he's asking me to do. It would be more harmful, the father says, to force him to stay than it is to do what he's asking. So that's what the father does. The father gives him half of the estate. The son then tears off with all this money, with all these possessions, And the Bible says in some other land, he blows it all on riotous, wild living. This kid blew it. This kid winds up penniless. He's starving. He's working for some farmer, slopping pigs. A pig, by the way, was an unclean animal in this culture. So this story is just getting more and more intense. These righteous, self-righteous, pious, super-religious Pharisees, they're hearing this story and they're saying, I hope that kid gets everything he deserves. Meanwhile, there's a whole other group of people that are thinking, I am that kid. I am that kid because I'm far away from home. I'm far away from God. I wonder if I return, will God embrace and accept me? Or will God reject me the way these Pharisees have rejected me all my life? Finally, at some point, eventually, the kid realizes he's lost. Eventually, it dawns on him, I'm lost, man. I blew it. So he comes to the conclusion, I'm going to return home. I'm going to ask my father if I can be one of his servants. Because even my father's servants live better than I'm living now. And he wonders what kind of welcome or what kind of response he'll receive if he goes back to his dad and says, please accept me. Now, At the same time, the tax collectors are thinking, well, the father's not missing him. The father hopes he learns his lesson. The father is disgusted with him, just like I'm disgusted with him. The father would just as soon him learn his lesson so the dad could say, "Uh uh-huh, I told you so. You made your bed, now I want you to lie in it. But that's not how Jesus responded. The father says in verse 20, look at the end of verse 20. 
But while he, that's the son, was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with anger. Was filled with disgust. Was filled with, uh uh-huh, I told you so. No. The father was filled with compassion for him. Now listen to me. To the religious people in that audience, that father was a fool. He was a fool. That son had cost him half of his estate. This could have been not only a lifetime of hard work on this father's behalf. This could have been generational wealth. Maybe great granddad built the company, passed it on to grandpa. Grandpa passed it on to dad. Dad passed it on to me. Now my son has blown half of it. The religious people in that audience thought to themselves, anything but compassion. And yet that's exactly what he gave him. Let me ask you a quick question before we finish reading the story. If God saw people outside the way you see them, would any of them be drawn inside? If God saw people outside what Jesus would say they're lost, would any of them be found? Look with me at verse, well, pick it up at verse 20. Again, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. He was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. The son then said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. See, the religious people, that's, that's what they taught him to say. That's what he thought by listening to the religious people. This is how you're supposed to say it. I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But now watch, watch how Jesus saw the son. It's the same way the father saw the son. Verse 22. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring me the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger, put sandals on his feet, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast. Let's celebrate for this son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was lost, but now he's found. And they began to celebrate. See, the father knew exactly where the son was. The son knew exactly where he was. He wasn't lost geographically. The son was lost relationally. This relationship was broken. It needed to be mended. This, my friend, is how God sees everyone in your life. They're not the rich people. They're not the educated people. They're not the with it people. They're not the hip people. They're not the lousy people. They're not the poor people. They're not the needy people. They are either lost or they're found. Everyone in your life, everyone on, in your neighborhood is either lost or they're found. Every one of your classmates is either lost or they're found. Everyone on the soccer team, the baseball team, the basketball team, they're either lost or they're found. God sees everyone in your life not as, wow, look at her grow. Wow, look at him give. Man, can you hear her pray? Wow, what a beautiful song. No. God looks at everybody in your life and mine. They're either lost or they're found. Now, I bring this to your attention because the natural gravitational pull of a local church has always been toward the 99, not the one. That makes us just like any other civic group, country club, or something requiring membership. The natural gravitational pull of the church has always been toward the 99 givers, the 99 tithers, the 99 who pay the bills, not the bad people. Not the liberal people, not the needy people, not the stagnant people, not the people who don't serve or don't don't give. Look, my biggest fear in ministry, 
My biggest fear, hands down, always has been this way. I've never felt money and feared money or budgets. I've never feared people that misunderstand and get angry with me. I've never feared any of that. My biggest fear in ministry is that we'll lose focus and we'll forget that God's eyes are on the lost always. And God's eyes are on the disconnected always. And there is rejoicing in heaven when a lost gets found. Someone outside comes inside. Again, we think we warm the heart of God. We think that our programming, our work, all the good things we do in the community, we think that makes God proud. Look at all the good things we're doing. We're like the older brother in this story. And that's where I'll quit. Read the last bit with me, beginning of verse 28. The older brother became angry. Refused to go in to this party. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and I've never disobeyed your orders. Dad, you realize I'm the good people. Dad, I'm the religious people. Dad, I'm the knowledgeable people. I'm the giver. I'm the servant. God, I'm involved. I'm plugged in. Do you realize? Yet you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, note, he's not my brother, he's your son. I'm disgusted with him. When this son of yours has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill a fattened calf for him. So guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to go join another family. I'm going to go join another church. Look how the father responds. Verse 31. My son, the father said, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate. We had to be glad. Because this, he turns it around on him. Brother of yours, you're no more valuable than he. You're no more of a son than he. You're both brothers. He was dead. He's alive again. He was lost. But now he's found. Gang, we are trying to do something very specific at Grace Community Church and have been for 20 years. It's difficult. It's anything but self-serving. It's easily misunderstood. But if you want to be like Jesus, you need to jump in. You need to join us. It is my heart, it is my hope that in the days and months to come, you will begin to recognize every person you speak to at the bank or the grocery store or the hardware store or the gas station is either lost or found. People who weren't anything like Jesus still like Jesus. People who aren't anything like us out there need to like us and be in here. Let's pray. Father, it's difficult to get our minds around an idea like this. It just is. We like to feel special. We like to feel like we're important. We're most important even. And certainly more important than someone else. Father, forgive us. Humble us before you, God, that we might make time for those out there, not just those of us in here. That we might sacrifice for those out there, not just for those like us in here. That we might be willing to give, encourage, and uplift those out there, not just those of us in here. I pray this because of my faith in you, Father, with respect and thanksgiving. Having once been lost, but thank God, now I'm found. Amen. God bless you, Grace Community Church. Fantastic to see you today. I mean that. I'll see you next time.